Are we living in the end times? Newsweek magazine just about a year ago had a headline that was surprising to me. The headline of their magazine was shocking number of Americans believe that we are living in the end times. If you read the article, about 39%, according to a new Pew Research study, believe that, yeah, we're, we're living near the end. What's interesting is that this wasn't a study done just among Christians. This was a study done among all Americans. And almost 40% of them said, yeah, I, I think we are living in the end times. What about you? You think we're living in the end times or not? You know, as we're in this series on uh, While We Wait, we've been looking at two books in the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians. They were written by a man named the Apostle Paul, and he was writing to a church in Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. And he had planted this church, and now he was writing to clear up some confusion. One of the things they were confused about was the return of Christ. They're like, well, where is he? They were tired of waiting, and if they were tired of waiting, we might be tired of waiting. That's why we titled the series, While We Wait. Today, I want to take you to a chapter in the New Testament that I think is one of the most interesting chapters in the Bible. And if you're a person who said, well, I've tried to read the Bible, and it was just boring. Like, I didn't, it wasn't interesting to me at all. I think at the very least, you're going to read this, and you're going to go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like, what's that talking about? The chapter is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's what it says. It says, don't let anyone deceive you. So apparently, one of the issues that they were dealing with in the church in Thessalonica is that some people were being deceived. He said, don't let that happen. For that day, he's talking about the return of Christ, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He says this man of lawlessness will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now you might be wondering, who is this man of lawlessness? Most scholars believe that he is the Antichrist, which begs the second question, okay, well, who's the Antichrist? The Antichrist is just that. It's a person who's anti or against Christ. He sets himself up in opposition to Christ or as an alternative to Christ because it says that he wants people to proclaim him as God. In other words, don't worship God, don't worship Jesus. I, I can protect you, I can save you. You should worship me. Throughout history, there's been many people who have been accused of being the Antichrist. I tried to put together a full list of this for you, but the list just got too long. So here's, here's a few of the people historically who have been accused of being the Antichrist. Martin Luther, in the 16th century, 1517, he walked up to a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed what was called the 95 Theses to the door. It was 95 critiques of the Catholic Church at that time. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk, but he had saw some things in the church that were, he felt, corrupt and indulgent, and he nailed this 95 Theses to the church door. Started what was known as the Protestant Reformation, but those in the Catholic Church were feeling a little defensive Almost right away, we're like, Martin Luther is the Antichrist. And Martin Luther, he wasn't backing down. He's like, no, you're the Antichrist. And back and forth they went. Since that time, people like Napoleon, Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, all have been accused of being the Antichrist. 
In the 1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev was thought to have been the Antichrist, the leader of the Soviet Union. Why, why would people think that? Well, look at the birthmark on his forehead. People are like, well, clearly he's, that's got to be the mark of the beast. He is the Antichrist. Around that same time, there was people who accused Ronald Wilson Reagan, our 40th president, of being the Antichrist. And you may think, well, well, come on. Why would people think that Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist? Well, just look at his name and count up the number of letters in each part of his name. Ronald, six. Wilson, six. Reagan, six. Six, six, six. Clearly, he's got to be the Antichrist. In modern times, some of the names that I've heard tossed out there are uh, Obama, Trump, Elon Musk, Bill Gates. I mean, the list just goes on and on. I agree with Professor Michael Holmes. Michael Holmes has written a whole book on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and he points out two things. He says, first of all, most historical guesses have been wrong. There, there are many antichrists, the Bible says, with a small a. In other words, there's going to be people throughout history who are opposed to Christ, who are antichrist. That's an antichrist with a small a. But there's going to be one antichrist with a capital A, who's going to come and lead this rebellion before the return of Christ. But Jesus hasn't returned. So we know that that Antichrist figure hasn't existed, or at least all of those historical guesses were, were not correct. But the second thing that Michael Holmes points out is this. Such speculation distracts our attention from what we do know. What do we know? We know that Jesus Christ is going to return. We know that Jesus Christ is going to prevail. Before I leave this point, I want to go back to two words in the chapter that I read earlier. The first one is deceive. This is the Antichrist's primary strategy. It's to deceive and to set himself up as a counterfeit. He wants people to be fearful, wants people to be afraid so that then he can go, well, I'll protect you. I'll save you. All those things that you think that God is going to do for you. No, actually, I'm going to do that for you. Trust in me. It's the primary strategy to deceive and to be a counterfeit. The second word that I wanted to point out to you is lawlessness. It says in some way, this antichrist figure will be a man of lawlessness. I was shocked, and maybe you saw these videos as well, to see some of the video footage a couple of months ago from Chicago. There's a group of young people, teenagers, that had gathered in downtown Chicago and went on essentially a crime spree. They were looting stores, they were vandalizing property, destroying property, they were threatening people, and no one did anything about it. A couple months ago, our family was driving through downtown Los Angeles, and in order to kind of save myself from the freeway, GPS was taking me on some kind of roads through the heart of, of L.A. And I was shocked by the homelessness. Tents everywhere, trash laying all over the place. My daughter saw a little boy who peeked his head out of a trash can. This tiny little boy peeked his head out of a trash can. And I'm embarrassed to say that I was so tense driving through South Central Los Angeles that as she was trying to get my attention, I didn't hear her. And so embarrassed to say we didn't go back to help that little boy. 
But when you start to see some of the directions of society and where things are going, you start to see it's possible for a whole society to move away from law and order and goodness. It's also possible to see how we could be living near the end. When I was in college, this was about 25 years ago, is when I first became a Christian, and I would hear other Christians talk about the mark of the beast. And it's what I kind of joked about earlier with Mikhail Gorbachev, but the mark of the beast is talked about in Revelation chapter 13. And it talks about the beast or the Antichrist. They're, they're one and the same. And it says that the beast is going to cause people to receive a mark on their right hand or forehead so that no one may buy or sell. So there's a financial component here, except the one who has the mark of the beast or the number of his name, his number is 666. And I remember hearing other Christians and they would talk about this and some of them would pontificate that maybe in the future we would have credit cards implanted into our wrists and that would be the only way that we could buy or sell. And this is about 25 years ago and I remember thinking to myself, that is so weird. Like, I, I thought even though I was a Christian, I was like, Christians are so kooky, they are so weird, that is never going to happen. I couldn't even wrap my brain around that. It was a couple of years ago that I stepped back and I thought, whoa, that, that actually could happen. These days, there's talk of a cashless society. So there's no longer going to be the ability to walk in and pull out a, a physical dollar bill to pay for something. Everything will be digital. There's, there's Bitcoin. There's a thing now called the VeraChip. The VeraChip is a small microchip that can be implanted into your skin, and it can hold data on it, data including an identification number. Now, I'm not suggesting that we are in the end times. What I am suggesting, however, is that you can start to see how it could be possible that some of these things were to happen. And whenever I talk about these kinds of issues, the return of Christ, the Antichrist, it kind of weirds me out a little bit. So I want to just remind us of what is true. Jesus Christ is going to return. And when he does, he is going to prevail. He's going to protect those who stand firm in their faith. And so today I want to take you to back a chapter or back a book to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to talk about the return of Christ and the characteristics of it. And my hope is that you will be prepared, that you won't be caught off guard when that day happens. Here's the first characteristic of Jesus's return. Jesus's return will be surprising. First Thessalonians chapter four, I think is the clearest verse in the Bible of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. It says this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a commanding shout. First, all the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive, we're alive at the time that Jesus returns, and remain on earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. And then he adds this little sentence that I chuckle about a little bit. He says, so comfort and encourage each other with these words. Comfort and encourage each other with the idea that dead bodies are rising out of the grave and we're floating up in the air to meet Jesus? Is that comforting and encouraging to you? I don't know. I mean, freaky, scary, 
motivation to become a doomsday prepper, maybe. But I've kind of wondered, what, what about this is so comforting and encouraging? And if you're kind of new to the Bible or to church, or maybe you're not even sure what you believe about spiritual things, I'm guessing you agree with me. I'm guessing you're going, do we actually believe this stuff? Like, that just seems kind of crazy to me. And if I were sitting down with you to have coffee and we were talking about spiritual things, I wouldn't start here, okay? <laughs> I wouldn't be like, open up 1 Thessalonians 4, let's talk about dead bodies coming out of the grave. I would start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the historical evidence for that. But I have come to believe that these words are comforting and encouraging. And here's why. One day, Jesus is going to return to this earth. And when he does, he's going to set everything right. All the pain, all the suffering, all the injustices, he's going to set all of those right. And the people that we have loved in the past who have passed away and put their faith in Christ, we can be reunited with them one day. But this raises a question for me, at least, about the verse that we just read, because it says that those who died previously, their bodies will rise up from the grave. And so I've sort of wondered, well, where's my grandma? And my grandma was a faithful follower of Christ. Is she in heaven? Or is she in sort of a soul sleep in the grave waiting for Jesus to return? Now, this is one of those issues that Christians can disagree about. It's not an issue of salvation. I'm going to share with you what I think, and then I'll based on scripture, and then I'll kind of share with you what maybe other Christians believe about this. So where is grandma? Is she in heaven right now as I speak, or, or is she in a state of soul sleep? When Jesus died on the cross, there was two criminals next to him. And the criminal on the one side looked at Jesus and said, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus looked at that criminal and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. In some sense, I take that verse to mean what it says, that that, that day he was going to die on the cross, but he was immediately going to go to be in heaven. And so I believe that when we die, our souls immediately go to be with God in heaven forever. That's where my grandma is as I speak right now. Her soul is with God in heaven. But her resurrected body is waiting for the day when Jesus Christ will return. And our souls will receive a resurrected body and we will live forever on a new heavens and a new earth. Now, could I be wrong about this? No. No, yes, I could be wrong about it. And, and let me share with you what maybe other Christians would believe about this. Other Christians would say, no, she's in a state of soul sleep, waiting for Jesus to return, and then that's when she will be resurrected one day. And that's possible, but that doesn't make sense to me then how Jesus looked at the criminal and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Other Christians believe in what's called a secret rapture. This became popular with the Left Behind book series, and the idea was, if you're not a Christian, you might be walking down the street one day, and all of a sudden you look around, and you're like, where'd everybody go? And you look down, and there's Johnny's shoes, and there's his t-shirt, and there's his shorts, but he, Johnny just disappeared, and you were left behind. My wife, when our kids were little, she used to have to leave the house in kind of a chaotic hurry just to get the kids out the door. And so one time I went home to let a guy in who was fixing some screens out on our screen porch, and as we walked through the kitchen, it was a little bit embarrassing because there was a piece of toast 
And there was peanut butter on half of the toast, but the, the knife was sitting right there next to it. And there was bowls of cereal, half eaten, a little bit of cereal, a little bit of milk, and there was boxes of cereal all over the counter. And on the floor, there was piles of clothes. So it was like a t-shirt and shorts, and then over here, there's another t-shirt and shorts. And so just to kind of make light of the situation, I looked at the guy and I said, oh no, we missed the rapture. He didn't laugh. He didn't get it. He's like, just show me your screen. But, but this is the idea that some people have. They, they have this idea that there's going to be a secret rapture. Now, to be clear, I believe there's going to be a rapture. In other words, that we're going to be rising up to meet with Jesus. My issue is with the word secret. Because in the verse that we just read, it said that when Jesus returns, he's going to return with a commanding shout. Elsewhere, it says that trumpets are going to be blaring. That doesn't seem secret to me. I don't think it's going to be a secret, but I do think it's going to be surprising. Because look at what Paul says one chapter later. He says, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Have you ever had something stolen from you before? Did they call ahead? Did they give you a warning on that? No, they, they probably didn't. My wife had her wallet stolen one time. We think maybe she dropped it out of her purse at a restaurant. But when the people found it, they didn't return it. They went on a spending spree. And the first place that they went to was Taco Bell. Which I'm just trying to picture how that conversation took place. They find this credit card and they're like, oh my goodness, we've got about an hour. And they're going to figure it out. And they're going to call the credit card company. Shut down. What should we do? Let's go get some nacho fries. Let's go get a Baja Blast Mountain Dew and a cheesy gordita crunch. So they went to Taco Bell. Then after that, they went and they filled up their car with gas. Which I thought was sensible. That was responsible. Then after that, here's the third thing they purchased. They made a donation to an animal rescue shelter. And again, I'm trying to picture the conversation where they're sitting around. They're going, they kind of hits them. They're like, we're going to hell. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. We stole. We're, we're going to hell. What do we do? One of the guys like, puppies. Everybody loves puppies. Even God loves puppies. I mean, when God says, what did you do that for? We'll just be like, God, we made a donation for puppies. God will be like, okay, cool. I love puppies too. <laughs> so those are the three things that they purchased. But Jesus says that when he returns, it's going to be unexpected. You're not going to get a warning on it. You're not going to get a notification saying, hey, Jesus is about to return. It's just going to happen. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5. So this is one chapter later. He says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Sometimes you'll hear people say, hey, I know when Jesus is going to return. I'm predicting 2036 at midnight. You should never listen to that person. Jesus made it very clear. He doesn't even know when he's returning. Only God the Father knows that information. So to come like a thief in the night. The next verse says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Jesus himself in Matthew 24, he said it this way. He said, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings 
right up to the time that Noah entered the boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. I mean, I just want you to picture this in real life. They're at a wedding, and they're standing around at the reception. They're like, man, it's been raining a lot. Yeah, oh, man, it just keeps coming down. I have forecast that it's supposed to rain even more next week. And the next week, they're at a party, and they're standing around, like, the center island, and they're like, boy, it has sure been raining. Oh, I know. I've never seen it rain so much. We're supposed to get more rain even next week. And then all of a sudden, the flood comes, and it wipes out most of humanity. And, and they never saw it coming. And Jesus uses that to say this. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. In other words, you're going to be living life, normal life. There's not going to be a notification that's going to pop up on Outlook 15 minutes till Jesus returns. You don't get that. You're just going to be going through your day, going to work, going to school, sitting at one of your kids' sporting events, and all of a sudden, Jesus will return. It's going to be surprising. Here's the second characteristic of Jesus' return. It's this. It will be the best or the worst day of your life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, again, says this. While some people are saying, there is peace and security. In other words, just like it was in Noah's day, where they're at weddings and parties and banquets, and they're like, oh, we're good. There's peace. There's security. Sudden destruction will come upon them. I was reading a story about four students at Duke University, and they were taking an organic chemistry class. And they had done so well all semester that when they got to the final, they were like, we don't even need to worry about this. And so they went and visited some friends at the University of Virginia. And they had such a good time that they missed their test. They got back late on Monday, missed the class. And so they're like, we did well, but we can't afford to get a zero on the final. So they went to the professor, and they kind of came up with a story. They said, we were at the University of Virginia all weekend. We were studying so hard. But then on the way home, we got a flat tire. And that's why we missed class. And to their surprise, the professor said, no problem. Come in tomorrow. You can retake the test. They came in the next day. The professor put them into separate rooms and gave them the test. And there was only two questions on the test. The first question was worth five points out of 100. And it was a simple chemistry equation that they had talked about numerous times these guys thought, piece of cake. Flipped it over. Question number two was worth 95 out of 100 points. Question number two was, which tire? <laughs> and just like that, sudden destruction. See, some people go through life and they're like, I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I'm doing so well. I don't even have to worry about that. I mean, when Jesus returns, I'll just kind of figure it out. Peace, safety, security. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I need to speak some really sober words to some of us. For some of us, the return of Christ is going to be the best day of your life. For others of us, it's going to be the worst day. I mean, picture the scene that Paul is talking about here. People are going through life. They don't have a care in the world. They're like, peace, security, we're fine, we're good. They think, oh, I'm good with God. I'm, I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good moral things. I'm a spiritual person. I'm, I'm going to be just fine. Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9. It says, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, judgment. And the question I want to ask you today is this. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready to stand before God to give an account of your life? 
If you put your faith in Jesus, you absolutely are ready. But if you're here today and you're going, yeah, I think I'm a good person. I think I'm a spiritual person. I think I can, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to be fine. I'll just kind of work my way through it. I want to urge you today to reconsider that. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't like talking about judgment. I, I just, God is a God of love. Let's, let's talk about his love. And I love to talk about God's love. But you can't have one without the other. True love does not exist apart from justice. Think about this. If you have been the victim of sin, if somebody sinned against you, they abused you, they assaulted you, did you want God to look at that person who committed that sin against you and go, eh, it's no big deal. He made a mistake. Let's just forget about it. Do you want God to look at that person and go, you know, let's just kind of sweep that under the rug, pretend that didn't happen, right? And we're, we're, it's okay. No. You wanted that person to experience the consequences of their behavior. You wanted there to be justice. In order for God to love the victims of sin, he has to be a God of justice. In order for God to be good, he has to oppose that which isn't good. Now, my guess is that most of us are like, yeah, I, I want those people to be judged, of course. The hard part is to humble ourselves and to recognize that all of us deserve judgment. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter says this. He says, the Lord isn't being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. Peter wrote these words maybe 15, 20 years after Jesus' death on the cross. And at that time, there was people who were like, hey, Jesus said he was going to return. Where is he? Well, now we're closing in like 2,000 years later, and we're going, oh, where, where is he? Is he really going to return? And Peter says, I just want you to know that he isn't being slow, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish so he is giving more time for everyone to repent. If I've ever talked to someone who is kind of cynical and they're like, well, Jesus said he's going to return and, and why hasn't he returned yet? My answer is you. You are the reason he hasn't returned yet. You are the reason that God is delaying the end of the entire universe. It's out of love for you. He doesn't want one person to perish. He doesn't want one person to go through life and not know God. And so here's what I believe is true. If you are a believer in Christ, the return of Christ is going to be the best day of your life. It's going to be better than your honeymoon. It's going to be better than your wedding day. It's going to be better than the day that your kids were born. It's going to be a day when God wipes every tear from your eye. Because there won't be anything else to cry about ever again. It's going to be a day when there's no pain. You will not be in have any physical pain again. There will be no emotional pain. You will be face to face with God. And we can, we can be with God right now, but one day when he returns, he's going to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And people wonder, what is heaven going to be like? It's going to be a lot like earth, but without the effects of sin. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and, and we're going to be face to face with God. And there's never going to be a bad day. You're not going to wake up feeling depressed or anxious ever again. It's going to be the best day. But if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ and you're not sure about your eternity, I want to urge you 
There's no amount of good works that can save you one day. You can't be a good enough person to somehow cancel out the penalty for our sins. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve judgment, but he voluntarily died for us to take the penalty that our sin deserved. And so when we put our faith in Christ, when God looks at us on judgment day, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And when he sees that, he passes his judgment over us because he only sees the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. So today I want to invite you, if you're not sure where you stand with God or if you're trusting in your good works, I want to invite you to pray a prayer. The Bible says when you confess with your lips and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. And if you pray this prayer with me as you're leaving today, just take a moment to grab your phone and text the word BEGIN to 77888, just saying, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. And we want to celebrate that with you. We want to send you some free resources that will help you begin that relationship with God. Would you join me as we pray together at all of our campuses? Lord, one day, one day the heavens are going to open and your son, Jesus Christ, is going to return to this earth. And there was people in the New Testament who knew that you were going to send a savior to this world, but it took a while and they thought, I don't think it's going to happen. And then it did. And God, it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be surprising, but we trust in your word. We trust in your promise. God, I hope everyone here today is prepared and is ready for that. And God, there are some of us right now who are saying, you know, I've, I've just kind of always thought myself a good person. I've always believed that there was a God who exists. But I've never started a relationship with Jesus Christ. I've never put my faith in him. And God, they're just going to pray with me in the quietness of their mind right now. God, would you forgive me of my sin? I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me to take my judgment, to take my penalty that I could not pay for myself. And so God, I receive that gift right now, that free gift of salvation by your grace into my life. God, for all of us here, I pray that we would live, not focus so much on the things of this world, but we would have a, an eye to, to heaven and a focus on eternity that every day you would, you would help us to say, God, this is the day you made. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to serve you and follow you and trust in you. And God, I thank you that you are a God of justice and you are a God of love and that you are a God who keeps your promises. And we trust in those promises right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer with me, I just want to say I'm so proud of you. Congratulations. And I hope you enjoy uh, that. Enjoy us next week, rather, as we meet again for While We Wait. See you then.